Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian. I'm the literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is my weekly podcast of the Weekly Standard's Books and Arts section. And this week we're looking at the issue dated February 23rd, 2015. And the Books and Arts section, I am pleased to say, is headed off this week with a essay review by Gordon Wood, um, one of the deans of American history, I would say, um, professor of history at Brown, author of The Creation of the American Republic and uh, other classics of um, the history of the early American Republic, and a one-time student at Harvard of Bernard Balin, um, uh, who is also a retired professor of history, although at Harvard, and Balin has just published a collection of essays entitled Sometimes an Art, Nine Essays on History, um, which is published by Knopf. Bernard Balin is unquestionably the dean of, of uh, colonial historians in the United States and really one of the great um, uh, literary historians, or I should say one of the great uh, historians as writers in in America. And Wood's essay is a splendid appreciation of not only the uh, depth and influence of Balin as a historian, but an appreciation of him as a um, as a as a great writer on American history. Uh, one of the sub themes of Wood's essay, I should say, is that Balin uh, is also a representative of a waning school in American history, which is to say historians who are interested in um, um, in the narrative history of the United States of America, um, which uh, um, is, is not really uh, what dominates the academy at the moment, um, much to the dismay of, of Gordon Wood, which he uh, expresses in, in, in eloquent fashion. There's a... Um, a uh, passage in the piece, which I think sums up uh, the gist of what he's saying, uh, which I'd like to read for you. Quote, but a new generation of historians is no longer interested in how the United States came to be. That kind of narrative history of the nation, they say, is not only inherently triumphalist, but also has a teleological bias built into it. Those who write narrative histories necessarily have to choose and assign significance to events in terms of a known outcome, and that, the moral critics believe, is bound to glorify the nation. So instead of writing full-scale narrative histories, the new generation of historians has devoted itself to isolating and recovering stories of the dispossessed, the women kept in dependence, the American Indians shorn of their lands, the black slaves brought in chains from Africa. Consequently, much of their history is fragmentary and essentially anachronistic, condemning the past for not being more like the present. It has no real interest in the pastness of the past, unquote. Which I think very nicely sums up uh, what would, and, and uh, <clears throat> in an implicit sense, what Bernard Balin are talking about, and may also explain to some degree why uh, the practice of American history, the profession of American history is in 
something of a crisis at the moment and is in danger of descending into a kind of irrelevance. Anyway, I think I think Gordon Wood's review of of Bernard Bayon's essay collection is a necessary corrective to this, and I think uh, you will very much enjoy reading it. That is followed very much by a change of pace, a review by Amy Henderson of a book from Random House entitled Mademoiselle Coco Chanel and the Pulse of History by Rhonda K. Gorelick. Uh, Coco Chanel is one of the handful of women who in the late 19th, early 20th centuries sort of invented the uh, the idea of, of, of what we might call cosmetic beauty and, and all um, uh, became... Um, quite wealthy and quite influential, and, and one might say legendary in their time, Coco Chanel probably being the most successful of them all. Um, she was a French woman, um, born in poverty in 1883, died in, died in the early 1970s, lived into her late 80s. Um, and she had one of those um, delightfully checkered and peripatetic careers, which Rhonda Gorelick goes into some detail. She was um, very successful very early and so was quite prominent in, in what we might call transatlantic society, very influential in the way women uh, dressed and made up and presented themselves, I should say middle class and, and above women, um, presented themselves to the, to the world. She also remained in France during the war and was actually... Um, uh, something of a collaborationist during the period with the German occupation, which of course is not as was not as well known in after years. But um, despite that, and despite the stigma that attached to it, she was able to reassert herself um, after the war and and um, kept herself very much uh, competitive. She and her business uh, competitive with with others. And she died very much at the top of her game, uh, depicted in a uh, Broadway musical uh, based on her life, starring no less than Catherine Hepburn as Coco Chanel. So it's a, it's an interesting and perhaps instructive life, um, and the whole um, the whole story is very nicely told by Amy Henderson. That is followed by an essay by Edward Short, a frequent contributor to our pages on a new book from the Harvard University Press by David Dixon called Dublin, The Making of a Capital City. Um, Dublin is one of those cities that, um, I, I, and I'm relying on my uh, Irish friends, uh, their testimony, it's, it's one of those cities that is um, uh, somewhat more um, amenable in, in theory than in practice. It's not really one of the great um, capital cities of the world in terms of architecture and cuisine and other things, but uh, perhaps even culture. But on the other hand, it's it's been very much in the center of of the uh, uh, um, English speaking mind, uh, especially with the novels of of James Joyce. No one who's ever read Ulysses can can say that Dublin doesn't loom large in the culture of the twentieth century. And this is an interesting um, study of, of of Dublin as a as a as a city, not so much as an idea or as a setting for uh, great fiction. Um, 
the the architecture, the life of the city, the the role of Dublin in in modern Irish history, the the preservation in the mid twentieth century of a lot of um, Dublin's uh, Georgian architecture, which had fallen into some disrepair and neglect. Um, a very interesting essay, which taught me a great deal about about a city that um, um, certainly I should know better than I do, but um, anyone will enjoy reading about. That is followed by an essay by Mark Falkoff on um, two volumes of um, uh, uh, the novel series by the British novelist Olivia Manning called Fortunes of War. Um, it's a series of novels set in the uh, uh, immediate pre-war and wartime and immediate post-war period uh, in the British Empire. The first, um, uh, the first volume is uh, Fortunes of War, the Balkan Trilogy by Olivia Manning, and the second is Fortunes of War, the Levant Trilogy by Olivia Manning, which follows the adventures of a, of a handful of... Um, uh, it's a portmanteau uh, novel series and follows the adventures of a series of of interlocking lives and characters over a period of time. Um, we're used to it in the novels of uh, John Galsworthy and others. And um, Olivia Manning is a um, British novelist of the mid-20th century, not so well known um, to American readers. And Mark Falkoff makes the point that uh, she ought to be better known to American readers, that he finds the the Fortunes of War novels absolutely compelling reading, and fortunately they have now been reprinted nicely by New York Review Books, so they're available. And if you're interested, may I commend Mark Falkoff's um, essay to you. John Podhoritz's uh, movie review this week is of a musical uh, film called The Last Five Years, which uh, is a, a story that began as an off-Broadway musical a dozen years ago and has had a couple of iterations since, but John thinks that it has finally found its, its métier in this very um, uh, understated but affecting movie. Um, um, he calls it a jewel box of a musical movie musical that is unquestionably the best of its kind since Chicago was released in 2003. So if you have a taste for movie musicals, and if you have a taste for looking up films, um, sort of hidden gems in among the uh, movie releases of the moment, may I commend to you first John Podhoritz's review, and then the movie itself, The Last Five Years. And that is the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard for the February 23rd issue. I thank you very much for joining me for these few moments, and I look forward very much to talking to you again next week. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian. I'm the literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is my weekly podcast of the Weekly Standard's Books and Arts section. And this week we're looking at the issue dated February 23rd, 2015. 
And the Books and Arts section, I am pleased to say, is headed off this week with a essay review by Gordon Wood, um, one of the deans of American history, I would say, um, professor of history at Brown, author of The Creation of the American Republic and uh, other classics of um, the history of the early American Republic, and a one-time student at Harvard of Bernard Balin, um, uh, who is also a retired professor of history, although at Harvard, and Balin has just published a collection of essays entitled Sometimes an Art, Nine Essays on History, um, which is published by Knopf. Bernard Balin is unquestionably the dean of of, uh, colonial historians in the United States and really one of the great um, uh, literary historians, or I should say one of the great uh, historians as writers in in America. And Wood's essay is a splendid appreciation of not only the uh, depth and influence of Balin as a historian, but an appreciation of him as a um, as a as a great writer on American history. Uh, one of the sub themes of Wood's essay, I should say, is that Balin. Uh, is also a representative of a waning school in American history, which is to say historians who are interested in um, um, in the narrative history of the United States of America, um, which uh, um, is, is not really uh, what dominates the academy at the moment, um, much to the dismay of, of Gordon Wood, which he... Uh, expresses in 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 eloquent fashion. There's a um, a uh, passage in the piece which I think sums up uh, the gist of what he's saying, uh, which I'd like to read for you. Quote: But a new generation of historians is no longer interested in how the United States came to be. That kind of narrative history of the nation, they say, is not only inherently triumphalist, but also has a teleological bias built into it. Those who write narrative histories necessarily have to choose and assign significance to events in terms of a known outcome, and that, the moral critics believe, is bound to glorify the nation. So instead of writing full-scale narrative histories, the new generation of historians has devoted itself to isolating and recovering stories of the dispossessed, the women kept independence, the American Indians shorn of their lands, the black slaves brought in chains from Africa. Consequently, much of their history is fragmentary and essentially anachronistic, condemning the past for not being more like the present. It has no real interest in the pastness of the past, unquote. which I think very nicely sums up uh, what would, and, and uh, <clears throat> in an implicit sense, what Bernard Balin are talking about, and may also explain to some degree why uh, the practice of American history, the profession of American history, is in something of a crisis at the moment and is in danger of descending into a kind of irrelevance. Anyway, I think I think Gordon Wood's review of of Bernard Balin's essay collection is a necessary corrective to this, and I think uh, you will very much enjoy reading it. That is followed very much by a change of pace, a review by Amy Henderson of a 
book from Random House entitled Mademoiselle Coco Chanel and the Pulse of History by Rhonda K. Gorelick. Uh, Coco Chanel is one of the handful of women who in the late 19th, early 20th centuries sort of invented the uh, the idea of, of, of what we might call cosmetic beauty and, and all um, uh, became... Um, quite wealthy and quite influential and, and one might say legendary in their time, Coco Chanel probably being the most successful of them all. Um, she was a French woman um, born in poverty in 1883, died in, died in the early 1970s, lived into her late 80s. Um, and she had one of those um, delightfully checkered and peripatetic careers, which Rhonda Gorelick goes into some detail. She was um, very successful very early and so was quite prominent in, in what we might call transatlantic society, very influential in the way women uh, dressed and made up and presented themselves, I should say middle class and, and above women, um, presented themselves to the to the world. She also remained in France during the war and was actually... Um, uh, something of a collaborationist during the period with the German occupation, which of course is not as was not as well known in after years. But um, despite that, and despite the stigma that attached to it, she was able to reassert herself um, after the war and and um, kept herself very much uh, competitive. She and her business uh, competitive with with others. And she died very much at the top of her game, uh, depicted in a uh, Broadway musical uh, based on her life, starring no less than Catherine Hepburn as Coco Chanel. So it's a, it's an interesting and perhaps instructive life, um, and the whole um, the whole story is very nicely told by Amy Henderson. That is followed by an essay by Edward Short, a frequent contributor to our pages on a new book from the Harvard University Press by David Dixon called Dublin, The Making of a Capital City. Um, Dublin is one of those cities that, um, I, I, and I'm relying on my uh, Irish friends, uh, their testimony, it's, it's one of those cities that is um, uh, somewhat more um, amenable in, in theory than in practice. It's not really one of the great um, capital cities of the world in terms of architecture and cuisine and other things, but uh, perhaps even culture. But on the other hand, it's it's been very much in the center of of the uh, uh, um, English speaking mind, uh, especially with the novels of of James Joyce. No one who's ever read Ulysses can can say that Dublin doesn't loom large in the culture of the twentieth century. And this is an interesting um, study of, of of Dublin as a as a as a city, not so much as an idea or as a setting for uh, great fiction. Um, the the architecture, the life of the city, the the role of Dublin in in modern Irish history, the the preservation in the mid twentieth century of a lot of um, Dublin's uh, Georgian architecture, which had fallen into some disrepair and neglect. Um, a very interesting essay, which uh, taught me a great deal about about a city that um, um, 
certainly I should know better than I do, but um, anyone will enjoy reading about. That is followed by an essay by Mark Falkoff on um, two volumes of um, uh, uh, the novel series by the British novelist Olivia Manning called Fortunes of War. Um, it's a series of novels set in the uh, uh, immediate pre-war and wartime and immediate post-war period uh, in the British Empire. The first, um, uh, the first volume is uh, Fortunes of War, the Balkan Trilogy by Olivia Manning, and the second is Fortunes of War, the Levant Trilogy by Olivia Manning, which follows the adventures of a, of a handful of... Um, uh, it's a portmanteau uh, novel series and follows the adventures of a series of, of interlocking lives and characters over a period of time. Um, we're used to it in the novels of uh, John Galsworthy and others. And um, Olivia Manning is a um, British novelist of the mid-20th century, not so well known um, to American readers, and Mark Falkoff makes the point that uh, she ought to be better known to American readers, that he finds the the Fortunes of War novels absolutely compelling reading, and fortunately they have now been reprinted nicely by New York Review Books, so they're available, and if you're interested, may I commend Mark Falkoff's um, essay to you. John Podhoritz's uh, movie review this week is of a musical uh, film called The Last Five Years, which uh, is a, a story that began as an off-Broadway musical a dozen years ago and has had a couple of iterations since, but John thinks that it has finally found its, its métier in this very um, uh, understated but affecting movie, um, um, he calls it a jewel box of a musical movie musical that is unquestionably the best of its kind since Chicago was released in 2003. So if you have a taste for movie musicals, and if you have a taste for looking up films, um, sort of hidden gems in among the uh, movie releases of the moment, may I commend to you first John Podhoritz's review, and then the movie itself, The Last Five Years. And that is the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard for the February 23rd issue. I thank you very much for joining me for these few moments, and I look forward very much to talking to you again next week.